Hello everyone, welcome to the third episode of our Below the Radar conversation series. Today we speak with ICU physician and writer Dr. Kevin Patterson about what he's learned working in the front lines during COVID-19. Thank you, Kevin, so much for joining us on uh, Below the Radar. I think perhaps we can just uh, start, um, if you could just introduce yourself uh, a little bit. Sure. I'm, I'm Kevin Patterson. I, uh, I'm a writer and a novelist and uh, a physician. I, I do um, critical care in uh, the ICU in Nanaimo, and I've been working for a long time up in the Canadian Arctic as well. Great. Uh, you know, I had a chance to uh, listen to uh, a conversation that you had as part of the Salt Spring Forum uh, back in March as COVID was really uh, uh, emerging quite quickly in BC at the time. And uh, I found it really interesting to uh, listen to your uh, perspective on it. It's such a new virus. And for a lot of people, um, uh, seeing something of this scale uh, in size and and the uh, rapid nature of it. For many people, it's the first time they're seeing something like this, although um, uh, in other parts of the, the, the world, there have been uh, uh, pandemics that have caused uh, a lot of uh, mortality. I'm just wondering, uh, like from a, a treatment perspective as an ICU uh, doctor, someone seeing uh, something like the novel coronavirus, uh, what have you sort of learned on the the, the front line as as uh, you have seen patients and and also the, the rest of the medical community as well well um, you know we've we've seen viral pneumonias for many years and that's uh, a usual part of the work in intensive care units especially in the winter historically these have been related um, largely to uh, influenza related pneumonias but there's other viruses that can cause this too. And um, as with the traditional uh, viral pneumonias, the treatment is largely supportive. You know, we, when people develop respiratory failure and they're not able to keep, get enough oxygen in, in their lungs, uh, then we provide respiratory support. And uh, if their uh, blood pressure is low, then we give medicines to support the blood pressure. If their kidneys fail, we do dialysis. There's not, um, as, as with other viral pneumonias, there isn't specific therapy in terms of, uh, as there is, for instance, with bacterial pneumonias where we have antibiotics that work well and can turn things around. The, the strategy more is just to keep people alive while their uh, own immune systems uh, learn to mount a response that clears the virus from their bodies uh, and uh, hopefully, uh, results in their recovery. There are some nuances to, to COVID and or to SARS-CoV-2 infection that, um, that we're learning. We're learning that the, the virus um, is often induces a state of thrombophilia. It makes the body prone to forming clots. And uh, we're coming to understand that that's a, a significant part of how it uh, injures the body by forming uh, large and small uh, clots uh, from head to toe, and there's um, increased rates of uh, stroke and uh, clot-related injury all over the body. Um, and um, there are some technical aspects about how we set up the ventilator that is 
somewhat different from from uh, other viral pneumonias. But at the end of the day, the the treatment is supportive, and uh, our ambition is to get people through the acute crisis uh, until their own bodies can clear the, their infection and uh, and they can um, come off of life support and, and get better and go home. Now, Kevin, you're a, a writer as well, and uh, when something like a pandemic um, uh, comes forward and hits with such speed, a lot of uh, questions remain um, unanswered in terms of how to plan for the future. We have, you know, varying uh, places like BC and others that are opening um, up uh, to a degree without, you know, really having a sense if there's going to be a second uh, wave of this. And uh, so uh, there's a lot of anxiety um, uh, out there and there's regional variations in terms of how the spread has happened in Ontario and Quebec and uh, from your perspective in, in having looked at other pandemics uh, historically um, what are some of the issues that come up uh, from your perspective in terms of how uh, we should be planning not just for the fall and the spring but but for a future pandemic uh, as as well what are the blind spots in our thinking about how we plan for these uh, types of events well, the first thing I would say is that there's been a uh, tremendous uh, blind spot in uh, the Western world broadly about the threat that pandemics uh, pose. Um, the history of pandemics is as old as the history of civilization. And for, for thousands of years, um, uh, pandemics have surged forth and, and become uh, history-altering events uh, quite regularly. There's been this anomalous period over the last sort of half century where that seemed to have abated and uh, for reasons that don't make much sense in retrospect, we, we sort of wrote off the threat, uh, even though there was some warnings, right? I mean, when H1N1 broke out in 2009, that got our attention briefly. Uh, the first SARS epidemic in 2001 got our, or 2003, pardon me, got our attention as well. But um, the, and, and Ebola, of course, has been a recurring issue in Africa. And at times we've, we've paid attention to that. But none of these events seem to suffice to, to um, get us ready in a thoroughgoing way for uh, what we're facing now. My, my guess is that in future pandemics, we will be much better prepared in light of our experience with COVID-19. Um, and and uh, I think this sense of invulnerability that, that characterized our pandemic planning, or absence thereof, um, will probably not be uh, a prominent issue for many, many years. With respect to where we are now and looking forward to the way uh, COVID-19 plays out over the next number of months, you know, we're all dealing, we're all swimming blind largely. Uh, you know, this is historically, this is unprecedented within my lifetime, certainly. And we don't yet have a sense of, of how um, stringent the social isolation techniques need to be moving forward to keep the, uh, pandemic from flaring quickly. There's some early and concerning information out of Germany having recently um, dialed back the social isolation measures and they're starting to see a, 
uh, a flare in their uh, new case loads. Singapore has had the same problem. Japan has had the same problem. Uh, and Korea has had the same problem. So there's tremendous cause for concern. And uh, But what we're going to see it now is a, a world-scale experiment that's going to unfold over the next months. Uh, a lot of people's eyes are focused on the uh, Southern American states that are um, decreasing isolation techniques very, very quickly, even in the face of, of um, rising case numbers prior to that, those measures being taken away. And, um, and I hope we'll learn a lot over the next several weeks and months about what is reasonable and what is not reasonable. There are some threads, some themes in the information. It's coming, it's starting to seem like outdoor interactions are relatively low risk and um, the uh, total clampdown of, of parks and outdoor recreation might not be um, as necessary moving forward. It's also clear that things like nightclubs, which is was the focus of the recent Korean outbreak, really uh, are a high-risk situation. And uh, it might be that nightclubs and concerts and indoor high-density interactions just might not be a part of our lives for a while, uh, maybe years. Um, so it's, it's a topic in con constant uh, evolution and our understanding is being refined all the time. I think the next month or two will be very, very interesting. Uh, you know, you're a writer as well, Kevin, and I was just uh, mentioning to you before I hit record, I just read John Barry's book on the great influence. I think for a lot of people, um, the uh, anxiety of uh, social isolation and other uh, pieces that come up, uh, what are some books that you would recommend that people read to help understand the the moment uh, related to writing about pandemics that you that you may have come across? Well, John Barry's book, The Great Influenza, is um, is a very good book uh, discussing the 1918 pandemic. To be sure, the um, The Coming Plague by Laurie Garrett is also quite a good book. Uh, in um, that was published presciently back in the 1996, uh, and it uh, examined the world's vulnerability to a new pandemic. She was she discussed uh, influenza and a, a variety of potential pathogens that she thought could possibly trigger the sorts of events that are unfolding right now. Uh, Gina Colada, who writes for the New Yorker, has published. Uh, extensively uh, as well about the influenza. I think her book is the great flu, and it's uh, it's it's very good too. It's it's really the equal of of John Barry's book. And um, the other person that I would refer everybody to is Michael Spector at the New Yorker as well, who's been writing in a really clear-sighted way about uh, the threat of uh, pandemic infection. Uh, for the last 20 years, and uh, he wrote well about SARS. He wrote well about uh, the 2009 H1N1 crisis. He's written about Ebola, and um, and uh, really accurately predicted a lot of a lot of what's unfolding tragically right now, emphasizing the importance of zoonoses. Uh, that's um, that is to say, uh, pathogens that leap across the species barrier as 
as um, COVID-19 did, probably from bats, possibly through an intermediary host. That's not certain yet. Um, and uh, examined, you know, the way th it's exactly that sort of event that is uh, that makes us all quite vulnerable. Normally, when a pathogen and a host species have co-evolved for a long time, there's a kind of equanimity uh, that exists between host and pathogen in as much as it's not in the pathogen's interest to kill the host off. And so uh, a relationship emerges that's, you know, if it's not, it's not ex exactly amicable, but it's like a long-term marriage that has uh, friction, but isn't ultimately uh, entirely mutually destructive. But with these new zoonoses with novel pathogens, the host is not evolved to the pathogen, the pathogen is not evolved to the host. And so there's this uh, really violent and disordered interaction that, that, that we see, for instance, in COVID-19, where uh, the mortality rates are 10 to 50 times as high as that um, that we see with influenza, for instance. Those are those are the writers that that leap to mind. There's um, there's some new good writing going on as well. Uh, uh, Stat News has a very good uh, coverage of, of COVID nineteen. Um, Helen. Bramswell, I think is her name, is doing most of it and is, is, is quite good. Um, and, uh, and then there's, there's longer term writers like Roy Porter, who's, who, who died just a few years ago, who, who's the great medical historian of our era, who uh, wrote very, very well about tuberculosis. But a lot of those themes apply. You know, he emphasized the vulnerability of uh, socially marginalized groups, poverty, and, and the way poverty and crowding render them vastly more vulnerable to, to infectious pathologies. This is of particular relevance in Canada when one can only look on with dread uh, at the prospect of COVID-19 um, getting loose uh, among the Indigenous people, especially the reservations and the, the Inuit communities up north where crowding is such a big deal. Uh, the tuberculosis rate, for instance, in Nunavut is, um, has been compared to that in Somalia because you've got up to 20 adults living in three-bedroom houses. It's just terrible. <clears throat> and if COVID-19 got loose up there, I think it would be disastrous. Fortunately, there hasn't been a case yet in Nunavut, but the summer is approaching. And with summer, the, there's construction workers uh, who historically come up to the north for the summer to work and uh, the school teachers go south for instance and so there's more more interchange more travel that's coming up and I'm, I'm quite anxious about what's going to unfold in those communities over the next three to four months. In terms of uh, the um, uh, large pandemics that happened in the 20th century from 1918 to 20, 57, 58, um, and 68, uh, 69, are there some things that we can learn from uh, the outcomes of those moments in some way uh, that uh, would help us think through the, the present moment? Uh, they are obviously of another era in a different um, uh, context, but in, in your understanding of, of pandemics, is there something that happened during those that would be helpful for us to think through um, how to deal with this moment? 
Well, the, the phenomenon that we're all preoccupied with right now is the second wave. And in 1918, that was a, a huge, huge deal. Uh, similarly to today's events, the, the first response to uh, the outbreak was a social uh, distancing um, effort and, and schools were shut down and swimming pools and all manner of social interchange was, was uh, dialed right back for weeks and months. And, um, and then as people grew frustrated with that, uh, there, was, there emerged pressure to relax those rules and that was done. And, uh, and a second wave followed, which was more lethal than the first wave in many circumstances. And, uh, and then ultimately, in 1918, there was a third wave that was really quite a protracted affair. And um, <clears throat> the, this is hard not to, to look back at that historical experience um, in light of what, where we're at right now and uh, not be deeply concerned. The more recent influenza outbreaks in 57 and 68 are, you know, instructive. They, um, they resulted in over a million deaths in each circumstance. Uh, and uh, I think COVID-19 will easily exceed those. Um, there wasn't uh, an influenza vaccine widely available then. Uh, just as there is not yet a COVID-19 vaccine available. In, um, in 57 and 68, though, the world did not, um, did not you know, clamp down the way the world has clamped down for, for COVID-19. But that's appropriate because COVID-19 is, in every measurable way, a, a much more threatening pathogen than those viruses were. And they still managed to kill a million people in this circumstance. The contagiousness is is dramatically higher. Uh, the they talk we talk about R naught or the reproductive number of uh, influenza and pandemic influenza is typically about 1.8 and seasonal influenza is lower than that 1.3 or 1.4, which is to say this is the average number of people that each new case infects and. Um, um, COVID-19 ranges between you know, two to seven, depending upon the context. Now, it's, this is a context-dependent phenomenon, and when we uh, exert um, aggressive social um, distancing techniques, we can get that R number down below one, which leads to the uh, extinguishing of the, of the pandemic. But the problem is, is that we've only achieved that with measures that are so severe that they're not really sustainable over the long run. And indeed, people are starting to to um, cheat a little bit on the rules already. You know, there's lots of people out at the beaches in Vancouver, and uh, I'm seeing this as well on Vancouver Island and uh, and uh, in the American South. Uh, people have. In many situations, people really haven't adhered to them well at all, and now they're just disregarding them entirely. So we'll see what the outcome of this is, and uh, and and hopefully, hopefully, things like playing soccer at the beach is going to be a low risk situation, as I feel it probably will prove to be. But um, Quebec is talking about opening up schools quite quickly. There are already some schools opening up in Quebec. Those are the sorts of measures where you have inside, close contact, difficult to isolate, 
These are kids after all. They're difficult to isolate from one another. Those are the situations I think that really present some serious peril. As uh, many people have uh, pointed out, pandemics are occurring with uh, greater uh, frequency uh, associated with human encroachment on the natural world and I guess to some degree the consequences of, of climate change. Um, you know, what are some of your reflections on um, just the nature and the frequency of, of pandemics um, happening in, in recent years and also uh, in the near future as well? Well, um, as long as human beings are interacting with animals, uh, there will be viruses leaping across the species barrier and uh, creating novel pathogens, which for reasons we just touched on, uh, always have a low but non-zero risk of uh, turning into uh, uh, a pandemic. And so difficult to avoid that. With influenza, the interaction is between chickens and pigs and human beings, and uh, uh, the virus evolves in one of those three species and then leaps to the other two. Um, in uh, Ebola, it uh, seems that the virus came from primates that were probably taken as bushmeat in, in Africa. And, and the, the climate change piece becomes important there because as, um, as uh, rainforest is felled and people penetrate deeper into the forest, perhaps related to food insecurity issues, then there is more and more interaction um, uh, but, you know, this has always been a phenomenon, um, of course, you know, um, HIV, uh, originally originated in primates as well, and 60 or 70 years ago, it, uh, or more like a hundred years ago, it, um, it, uh, leapt from, um, primates into, to human beings. Most of the, uh, you know, tuberculosis did that from cattle to human beings and possibly originally seals uh thousands and thousands of years ago so as long as there are, are are other mammals and human beings on the planet and we're interacting these are going to be risks um i think the bigger risk is driven by uh density and the progressive urbanization of our societies about 10 years ago for the first time uh, in human history, uh, we now have more humans living in cities than living in rural areas. And, um, and as we saw in New York, and we've seen uh, throughout the, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, density is a real risk factor for, for this contagion, as it is for all, con all contagious diseases, uh, prisons and uh, reservations, cruise ships, uh, naval ships. These these are all very high risk situations because you just have so many people living cheek by jowl in these circumstances, and and um, that's a that's a quite a recipe for rapid spread of infectious diseases. So there's there's a number of aspects to our world today that renders us vulnerable um, from a density point of view, more even more vulnerable than we have been historically. Uh, I think human present or uh, human insertion into previously wild places does uh, represent a, a risk, but so does human interaction with livestock too, and that's always been the case. 
Now, uh, you know, emergency planning in the region has had a big focus on uh, earthquakes here. There's a lot of uh, preparedness that was going on at the city level and provincial level. There's been some work around uh, wildfires, but um, perhaps less so on uh, uh, pandemics. Uh, and uh, what do you see as the weaknesses in the, in the health system and, and in terms of COVID uh, coming in as rapidly as it did, there was of course you know shortages around ventilators and masks and those types of things. But how can uh, public agencies, health authorities, prepare better for a future uh, pandemic? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is completely rethink the prominence that public health agencies have, not just within our country but around the world. The World Health Organization, for instance, has been grossly underfunded for many, many years, and um, uh, that has to be done away with. You know, the the UN spends billions and billions of dollars a year on armed peacekeeping, for instance. But as we're seeing, the real threat to our, our society, or just as real a threat to our society as uh, armed conflict is is uh, pandemic outbreaks and um, I, I would argue that um, pandemic preparation should be funded for at comparable levels certainly certainly COVID-19 is doing going to end up as having killed more people um, uh, through its actions I think as um, as uh, many wars have and um, and so that needs to change. In Canada, we can be proud that we've got some of the world's best public health uh, uh, teams in place. Um, SARS broke out in Toronto in 2003 and through very skilled public health measures and um, a broadly uh, cooperative public, we were able to, to extirpate it in Toronto and, and it, it died out completely. We really missed, we dodged the bullet there. The bullet has not been dodged with with COVID-19, of course, but, um, um, you know, bon Bonnie Henry has become a popular hero in British Columbia here, and I think for very good reasons, you know, very measured, transparent, uh, effective communication. She's brought the whole public of, of BC on, on side for the most part. And, um, and moving forward you know when we get past this we're going to just have to take a, a very wide-ranging view of of um the vulnerabilities that exist within our societies from a public health point of view the issue that leaps to mind of course is long care uh long-term care facilities and the kind of crowding that that we allow to exist in them and the circumstances you know, for instance, un underpaying the personal health care workers so badly that they have to work in multiple different nursing homes and long-term care facilities in order to, to string together a living wage, that has to just go away, you know. Uh, these rules that prevent them from working full-time so that they won't be eligible for full-time benefits, that sort of thing should just be, be uh, uh, that, that has to stop if by statute if necessary. I mean, should stop everywhere. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be possible when you're working for Walmart either. But um, uh, you know, that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg, though. I think I think that um, uh, ongoing monitoring for uh, contagious disease should be a part of how airports are constructed and how mass transit works. And, um, 
you know, we're, there's there's aspects of these things that haven't even occurred to us yet, I think, that we, we need to examine and remedy to reduce our vulnerability to episodes like this in the future. Kevin, is there anything you'd like to, to add? Um, just that, you know, we're, we're going to get through this. It's going to be long. It's not going to be over in a few months. It's going to go on for a long time. And um, <clears throat> it's uh, going to go away because we take care of one another. We need to be kind and we need to support one another. And we have to keep our eyes on how the most vulnerable among us are doing at all times and do what we need to do to support them. This is as much a test of moral courage and generosity as, as it is of our immune systems. And um, the human species has prospered around the world because of our ability to cooperate. And because we're a social animal, we're, we're rendered vulnerable to pandemics, but it's, that's also our secret superpower that uh, through taking care of one another, we, we can surmount this. This is a message that's been broadly received, I think, already, and we just have to sustain it. And as we grow more frustrated with the changes in our lives that the infection has been has made, we just need to understand that we all need one another to stick to these measures in order to, for all of us to be saved. Kevin, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us on Below the Radar. Oh, my great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.